essay number one of For Every Music Lover, a series of practical essays on music by Obertine Woodward Moore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Origin and Function of Music one of the most interesting of the many interesting stories of our civilization is the story of music. It affords an intimate knowledge of the inner life of man as manifested in different epochs of the world's history. He who has failed to follow it has failed to comprehend the noblest phenomena of human progress. Mythology and legendary lore abound in delightful traditions in regard to the birth of music. The untutored philosophers of primitive humanity and the learned philosophers of ancient civilizations alike strove to solve the sweet, elusive mystery surrounding the art. Through the myths and legends based on their speculations runs a suggestion of divine origin. The Egyptians of old saw in their sublime god Osiris and his ideal spouse Isis, the authors of music. Among the Hindus it was regarded as a priceless gift from the great god Brahma, who was its creator, and whose peerless consort, Sarasvati, was its guardian. Poetic fancies in these lines permeate the early literature of diverse peoples. This is not surprising. Abundant testimony proves that the existence of music is coeval with that of mankind, that it is based on the modulations of the human voice and the agitations of the human muscles and nerves caused by the infinite variations of the spiritual and emotional sensations, needs and aspirations of humanity. That it has grown with man's growth, developed with man's development, and that its origin is as divine as that of man. The inevitable dualism which Emerson found bisecting all nature appears also in music, which is both spiritual and material. The spiritual part of music appeals to the spiritual part of man, addressing each heart according to the cravings and capacities of each. The material part of music may be compared to the body in which man's spirit is housed. It is the vehicle which conveys the message of music from soul to soul the medium of the human ear, with its matchless harp of nerve fibres and its splendid sounding board, the eardrum. Music is the mirror which most perfectly reflects man's inner being, and the essence of all things. Ruskin saw clearly that he alone can love art, well who loves better what art mirrors. This may especially be applied to music, which offers as a Beethoven has said, a more lofty revelation than all wisdom and philosophy. Having no model in nature, being neither an imitation of any actual object, nor a repetition of anything experienced, music stands alone among the arts. It represents the real thing, as Schopenhauer has it, the thing itself, not the mere semblance. Were we able to give a thoroughly satisfactory explanation of music, he declares, we should have the true philosophy of the universe. Music is a kind of inarticulate, unfathomable speech which leads us to the edge of the infinite and impels us for a moment to gaze into it, 
exclaimed Carlyle. Wagner found in music the conscious language of feeling, that which ennobles the sensual and realizes the spiritual. Music is the harmonious voice of creation, an echo of the invisible world, one note of the divine concord which the entire universe is destined one day to sound, wrote Mancini. Literature is rich in noble definitions of the divine art. From a matter-of-fact standpoint, music consists of a vast concourse of tones which are its raw materials, and bear within themselves the possibility of being moulded into form. Utterances and actions illustrating these raw materials are common to all living creatures. A dog reiterating short barks of joy, or giving vent to prolonged howls of distress, is actuated by an impulse similar to that of the human infant as it uplifts its voice to express its small emotions. The sounds uttered by primeval man as the direct expression of his emotions were unquestionably those of a like nature. The tendency to manifest feeling by means of sound is universally admitted, and sound, freighted with feeling, is peculiarly exciting to human beings agitations of a mob may be increased by the emotional tones of its prime movers, and we all know that the power of an orator depends more on his skill in handling his voice than on what he says. A craving for sympathy exists in all animate beings. It is strong in mankind, and becomes peculiarly intense in the type known as artistic. The fullness of his own emotions compels the musician to utterance. To strike a sympathetic chord in other sensitive breasts, it becomes necessary to devise forms of expression that may be unmistakably intelligible. Out of such elements the tone language has grown, precisely as the word language grew out of men's early attempts to communicate facts to one another. Its story records a slow, painstaking building up of principles to control its raw materials. For music, as we understand it, cannot exist without some kind of design. Vague sounds produce vague, fleeting impressions. Definiteness, internal relations and rhythmic plan is requisite to produce a defined, enduring impression. In primitive states of music, rhythmic sounds were heard, defined by the pulses but with little or no change of pitch, and sounds varying in pitch without regularity of impulse. A high degree of intellectuality was reached before our modern scales were evolved from long-continued attempts at making well-balanced successions of sounds. As musical art advanced, rhythm and melodic expression became united. The study of the origin, function and evolution of music, according to modern scientific methods, is a matter of comparatively recent date. As late as 1835, a French writer of the history of music expressed profound regret that he had been unable to determine when music was invented, or to discover the inventor's name. It was his opinion that musical man had profited largely from the voices of the feathered tribes. He seriously asserted that the duck had evidently furnished a model for the clarionet and oboe, and Sir Chanticleer for the trumpet. An entire chapter of his book he devoted to Sermaces concerning the music before the flood. The poor man felt himself superior to the poetic fancies of the ancients, which at least foreshadowed the truth. But 
found no firm ground on which to stand. Much finer were the instincts of Kapellmeister Wolfgang Kasper, Prince of Waldtern, whose historical treatise on music appeared in Dresden in 1690. He boldly declared the author of music to be the good God himself, who fashioned the air to transmit musical sounds, the ear to receive them, the soul of man to throb with emotions demanding utterance, and all nature to be filled with sources of inspiration. The good Kapellmeister was in close touch with the truth. It was in 1835, the same year that the French writer mentioned offered his wild speculations that Herbert Spencer, from the standpoint of a scientist, produced his essay on the origin and function of music, which has proved invaluable in arousing discriminating thought in these lines. Many years elapsed before its worth to musicians was realized. Today it is widely known and far-reaching in its influence. In those inner agitations which cause muscular expansion and contraction and find expression in the inflections and cadences of the voice, Herbert Spencer saw the foundations of music. He unhesitatingly defined it as emotional speech, the language of the feelings, whose function was to increase the sympathies and broaden the horizon of mankind. Besides frankly placing music at the head of the fine arts, he declared that those sensations of unexperienced felicity it arouses those impressions of an unknown ideal existence it calls forth may be regarded as a prophecy to the fulfilment of which music is itself partly instrumental. Our strange capacity for being affected by melody and harmony cannot but imply that it is possible to realize the delights they suggest. On these suppositions might be comprehended the power and significance of music which must otherwise remain a mystery. The progress of musical culture, he thought, could not be too much applauded as a noble means of ministering to human welfare. Mr. Spencer's theory has of late led to much controversy. Its author has been censured for setting forth no explanation of the place of harmony in modern music, and for not realising what a musical composition is. In his last volume of Facts and Comments, which contains many valuable thoughts not previously published, he declares that his critics have obviously confounded the origin of a thing and that which originates from it. Here we have a striking example of the way in which an hypothesis is made to appear untenable by representing it as being something which it does not profess to be, he says. I gave an account of the origin of music and now I am blamed because my conception of the origin of music does not include a conception of music as fully developed. To someone who said that an oak comes from an acorn, it will reply that he had manifestly never seen an oak, since an acorn contains no trace of all its complexities of form and structure. The reply would not be thought a rational one, but he believes it will be quite as rational as to suppose he had not realized what a musical composition is, because his theory of the origin of music says nothing about the characteristics of an overture or a quartet. Of the music of primeval men, we can form an estimate from the music of still existing uncivilized races. As the vocabulary of their speech is limited, so the notes of their music are few, but expressive gestures and modulations of the voice supplement both. With advancing civilization, the emotions of which the human heart are capable become more complex and demand larger means of expression. 
some belief in the healing, helpful, uplifting power of music has always prevailed. It remains for independent, practical, modern man to present the art to the world as a thing of law and order. With ineffable beauty and beneficence, we reach the lives of the average man and woman. Without the growth of the individual, music cannot grow. Without freedom of thought, neither the language of tones nor that of words can gain full, free utterance. Freedom is essential to the life of the indwelling spirit. Wherever the flow of thought and fancy is impeded, or the energies of the individual held in check, the music is cramped. In China, where conditions have crushed spiritual and intellectual liberty, the art remains to this day in a crude rhythmical or percussion state, although it is early honoured as a gift of superior beings. The Chinese philosopher detected a grand world music in the harmonious order of the heavens and the earth, and wrote voluminous works on musical theory. When it came to putting this into practice, tones were combined in a pedantic fashion. In all ages and climes, music has ministered to religion and education. The sacred Vedas bear testimony to the high place it held in Hindu worship and life. Proud records of the stone reveal its dignified role in the civilization of Egypt, where Plato stated there had existed ten thousand years before his day music that could only have emanated from gods or godlike men. The art was taught by the temple priests, and the education of no young person was complete without knowledge of it. Egyptian musical culture impressed itself on the Greeks, and also on the Israelites whose tone language gained warmth and colouring from various oriental sources. Hebrew scriptures abound in tributes to the worth of music, which was intimately related to the political life, mental consciousness and national sentiment of the children of Israel. Through music they approached the unseen king of kings, with the plaintive outpourings of their grief-laden hearts, and with the joyful hymns of praise and thanksgiving. From the polished Greeks we gained a basis for the scientific laws governing our musical art. The splendid music of which we read in ancient writings has for the most part vanished with the lives it enriched. Relegated to the guardianship of exclusive classes, its most sacred secrets were kept from the people, and it could not possibly have attained the expansion we know. Music has been called the handmaiden of Christianity, but may more appropriately be designated its loyal helpmeet. Whatever synagogue or other melodies may have first served to voice the sentiments kindled by the gospel of glad tidings, it was inevitable that the new religious thought should seek and find new musical expression. In shaping a ritual for general use, an accompaniment of suitable music had to be considered. The fathers of the church constituted themselves also the guides of music. Those forms which give symmetry and proportion to the outward structure of the tonal art pruned and polished under ecclesiastical surveillance until spontaneity was endangered. Happily in the spirit of Christianity is that which ever proves a remedy for the mistakes of lawgivers. The religion that inculcates respect for the individual has furthered the advance of music and of spirituality. Beyond the confines of the church was another musical growth, springing up by the wayside and in remote places. Folk music it is called, it gives untrammeled utterance to human longings, human grief and despair, and human wandering over the mysteries of life, death, and the great beyond. Untutored people had always found a vent in this kind of music, 
the pent-up feelings and the folk music of the Christian world during the Crusades gained a new element in the fragments of Oriental melody transplanted into its midst. In time, through the combined wisdom of gifted composers and large-minded ecclesiastical rulers, the music of the church and the music of the people became united and modern music was born. Architecture, painting, sculpture and poetry possess practical proofs of their past achievements, and on these their present endeavours are builded. Modern music has been compelled to be the architect of its own fortunes. It is the one new art of our era, and, as the youngest in the family of arts, it has but recently reached a high state of development. During those eleven Christian centuries, from the latter part of the fourth century, when the cornerstone for our musical system was laid, until the wonderful exploration period of the fifteenth was well advanced, the masters of music were absorbed in controlling the elements of their art. Since then, event has crowded upon event with a rapidly increasing ratio. During the past two centuries, the progress of the art has been like a tale in fairyland. We now possess a magnificent musical vocabulary, splendid musical literature, yet so accustomed are we to grand treasure troves, we perhaps prize them no more than the meagre stores of the past were prized. Music is often mentioned in literature as a means of discipline, inspiration, and refreshment. We read in Homer that Achilles was instructed in the art that he might learn to moderate his passions. Pythagoras, father of musical science, counselled his disciples to refresh themselves at the fount of music before retiring to their couches at night in order to restore the inner harmony of their souls, and to seek strength in the morning from the same source. Plato taught that music is as essential to the mind as air is to the body, and that children should be familiarized with harmonies and rhythms that they might be more gentle, harmonious, and rhythmical, consequently better fitted for speech and action. A song brings of itself a cheerfulness that wakes the heart to joy, exclaimed Euripides, and certain it is a large measure of joy surrounds those who live in an atmosphere of music has a magic wand that lifts man beyond the petty worries of his existence. Music is a shower-bath of the soul, said Schopenhauer, washing away all that is impure. Music washes from the soul the dust of everyday life. Or, as Auerbach put it, realising the influence of music, Martin Luther sang the Reformation into the hearts of the people, with his noble chorals in which every one might join. He called music a mistress of order and good manners, introduced it into the schools as a means of refinement and discipline, in whose presence anger and all evil would depart. A schoolmaster, said he, ought to have skill in music, otherwise I would not regard him. Neither should we ordain young men to the office of preaching, unless they have been well exercised in the art, for it maketh a fine people. It were well if teachers and ministers today more generally appreciated the value of music to them and their work. Music is an essential factor in great national movements. Every commander knows how inspiring and comforting it is to his men. Napoleon Bonaparte, who is not readily lifted out of himself and who complained that music jarred his nerves, was shrewd enough to observe its effect on marching troops and to order the bands of different regiments to play daily in front of hospitals to soothe and cheer the wounded. 
The one tune he prized, Malbrook, he hummed as he started for his last campaign. In the solitude of St. Eleanor, he said, of all liberal arts, music has the greatest influence over the passions, and it is that to which the legislator ought to give the most encouragement. An art that in some form is found in the varied activities of all people, at all times, must be the common heritage of humanity. It does not speak to one class, but to mankind, said Robert Franz, the German songwriter. Alexander Bain called it the most available, universal, and influential of the fine arts, and Dr. Marx, the musical theorist, thought music beneficial to the moral and spiritual estate of the masses. Truly indeed has it been said that its universality gives music its highest worth. Mirroring neither your inner life alone nor mine, but the world's essence, the transfiguration of what seems real, the divine ideal, some spark of which glows in every bosom, each individual may feel in it whatever he is capable of feeling. The soul's language, it takes up the thread dropped by words, and gives utterance to those refined sentiments and holy aspirations words are inadequate to awaken or express. Its message is borne from heart to heart, revealing to each things unseen, according as it is prepared to receive them. In The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare made Lorenzo speak to Jessica of the harmony that is in immortal souls, and say that whilst this muddy vesture of decay doth grossly close it in, we cannot hear it. To refine this muddy vesture, to render the spirit attentive, to bring light, sweetness, strength, harmony and beauty into daily life, is the central function of music which, from the cradle to the grave, is man's most intimate companion. Richard Wagner devoutly believed it would prepare the way for an unspoiled, unfettered humanity, illumined by a perception of truth and beauty, and united by a bond of sympathy and love. This ideal union is the gold at which Tolstoy aims in his What is Art? He defines art as a human activity to be enjoyed by all, whose purpose is the transmission of the most exalted feelings to which men have arisen, but the union he proposes would have to be consummated by a levelling process. All art that cannot without preparation reach the uncultured classes is denounced by him. He is most bitter in his denunciation of Wagner, who fought for a democratic art, but who wished to attain it by raising the lowliest of his fellow creatures in an ever loftier plane of high thinking and feeling. According to Tolstoy, art began to degenerate when it separated itself from religion. There must have been dense mist before the Russian sage's mental vision when he fancied this separation possible. Art especially musical art, is a vital part of religion, and cannot be put asunder from it. Like thought, music, since the bonds of church and state have been broken, has spread wide its pinions and soared to hitherto unsuspected heights. All noble music is sacred. Amid the marvellous material progress, today music is more needed than ever. Unburdened by the responsibility of fact, it brings relief to the soul from the grinding pressure of constant grappling with knowledge. The benefits of knowledge are great, but it is also beneficial to be uplifted, as we may be by music, from out the 
perplexing labyrinth of the workaday world toward the realm of the divine ideal. As a means of culture, music is a potent factor in human civilization. It is destined to wield even greater influence than has yet been known. It has become the household art of today. As it enters more and more fully into the heart of the home and social life, it will more and more enrich human existence and aid in ushering in the kingdom of heaven on earth. If music can do so much for mankind, why are not all musicians great and good? Ah, my friend, that is a hard question to answer, and can only be fairly treated by asking another equally difficult question. Why are not all people who have enjoyed the advantages of religion wise and noble? Consider the gigantic machinery that has been put in motion to promulgate Christianity, and note how slow men have been to appropriate the teachings of its founder. Slow progress furnishes no argument against the mission either of religion or its comrade music. In common with religion, music kindles our finer sensibilities and brings us into an atmosphere superior to that which ordinarily surrounds us. It requires wisdom to beautify commonplace conditions with what has been enjoyed in aerial regions. Rightly applied, music can lend itself to this illumination. As it is better known, its advantages will be more completely realised. <laughs> 